Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast last October. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Christopher Gonzalez and Frederick Luis Aldama join us for the hour today to talk about their book, Real Latinxes. Latinx representation in the popular imagination has infuriated and befuddled the Latinx community for decades. These misrepresentations and stereotypes soon became as American as apple pie, but these cardboard cutouts and examples of lazy storytelling could never embody the rich traditions and histories of Latinx peoples. And not seeing real Latinxes on TV and film reels as kids inspired the authors to dive deep into the world of mainstream television and film to uncover examples of representation, good and bad. By the way, the 2020 International Latino Book Awards recently announced that the authors have won first place for this book for Best Fiction Multi-Author Section for Real Latinxes. Uh, Frederick Luis Aldama is the Arts and Humanities Distinguished um, uh, uh, Professor of English, University Distinguished Scholar, and University Distinguished Teacher at Ohio State University. He is the author, co-author, and editor of 36 books, including Long Stories Cut Short and the Eisner Award winner Latinx Superheroes in Mainstream Comics. And Frederick Aldama, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, Tom. Appreciate you being on. Christopher Gonzalez is Associate Professor of English and Director of the Latinx Cultural Center at uh, Utah State University. He's author, co-author, and editor of numerous books, including the Perkins Prize Honorable Mention, Permissible Narratives, The Promise of Latino uh, Literature. Uh, Christopher Gonzalez, welcome. Uh, thank you, Tom. It's good to be here. Appreciate you both being on. And uh, as you can hear, we're on the phone today. Um uh, Christopher probably would be in studio under normal circumstances, so the pandemic affects us all. Um, I want to uh, start with, uh, it's a question I've had, and, and you gentlemen addressed this, uh, I think it's right in the preface. So, Latinx or Latinx? And uh, I want to talk a little bit about this uh, the, the phrase, which is which is coming to, uh, you know, wide usage. Uh, still, not everyone is is on board. But uh, maybe I'd start with you, Frederick Aldama, with that, this question. Yeah, thanks, Tom. Um, I was just talking to a reporter about this and my students here at the Ohio State University. Um, yeah, Latinx or Latinex, if you want to pronounce it in the Spanish uh, version, is. You know, there's. It's been around for a while. It's gotten. It's gotten some traction, as you just mentioned. But what I what I love about it is that it's really something. It's a term that has come from our LGBTQ plus uh, community within the Latino Latina uh, spaces, demographic spaces, and it's been around for a while. Um, at least ten years. It's just been getting traction in the last five, six years, and mostly coming from the younger generations. Young people are really kind of embracing it. Now, I know there are people out there who are like, no, 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 it's Latino, or et cetera, et cetera. But I'll tell you what, uh, language is constantly evolving, and I go with, you know, the the energy and the inclusiveness of the term um, any day over something like Hispanic, which still kind of ties us to some weird Euro-Spanish lineage, which, you know is a complete mythology. So I'll leave it at that and let Chris take over. Uh, Chris Gonzalez, what's, uh, what's your answer to this question? Yeah, um, you know, I, I, I always say that, um, you know, Latinx culture is, is constantly um, trying to, to, to come to terms 
with a label or with a term that seems to suit everyone. And the difficulty there is that Latinx culture is so divergent. It's so, it's so vast. Um, um, you know, Latinx peoples descend from a multitude of Latin American and Caribbean nations that trying to um, uh, kind of shoehorn all of them into one particular term uh, seems to rankle people within the community. And so, for example, uh, the term Hispanic that you know, Frederick had just alluded to is really a remnant um, of the Nixon administration. And that term really uh, is, is, has not been embraced by the community simply because its, it's, it's origins come from the government. It is, it is superimposed by the government and a government that often seems hostile toward Latinx peoples. So um, it's, it makes perfect sense that, um, that there's going to be controversy, that there will be some people who are not uh, completely comfortable with it. But my take is always, let's not, uh, let's not make assumptions, right? Let's, let's come up with a term that doesn't assume gender, that doesn't assume certain things about a person. And then once I'm able to relate to a person uh, uh, you know, in a in a kind of a personal way, and if the, and if that particular individual says, well, I'd rather be you know identified as Chicano or Mexicano or Tejano or Cubano uh, and so on, then then we can have that that kind of uh, um, uh, discussion, and we can and we can certainly honor that. But it's also important for us as a community to unite as um, as as a um, as a block. Uh, of say of voters uh, uh, as a block of people in the United States that have certain uh, shared cultural traditions and norms, um, because the 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 greater the numbers, the more power we have politically and otherwise. I want to uh, before we jump into representations in film. Um, the two of you write Latinxes don't fit easily. Uh, in, preconceptions and expectations that have dictated what Latinxes look like and act on our moving television screens. Um, and you give a couple of examples. Uh, Cameron Diaz, uh, you know, fair-skinned, blonde-haired, blue-eyed woman. Uh, and Tony Romo, uh, retired football player, now star analyst uh, for, the, for the NFL. You go on to say it's paramount that, uh, that, that folks like this be recognized as belonging to the Latinx community for the sole reason that doing so helps break down that stubborn mold of expectations people have conceiving what Latinos, Latinxes look like and behave like. Uh, so I'll start with Christopher Gonzalez on, on this one. Uh, you say it's very important to, for that full range to be seen, I guess, and, and represented. Yeah, um, and I alluded to this in, in my comment earlier. Um, you know, the Latinx community is 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 so diverse in in many respects because there are so many heritages that have converged on the Americas uh, over history, uh, and so um, it, it is important to remember that um, you know someone like Cameron Diaz or Tony Romo, whose name is Antonio Ramiro Romo, um, but we know him as Tony Romo, um, often. Um, aren't seen uh, as belonging or having a tie, a, a close personal tie to Latinx culture. Um, on the other hand, um, since we're talking about sports, we may remember you know one of the one of the greatest baseball players of all time was Roberto Clemente, uh, Puerto Rican, uh, who who whose ancestry is clearly of African descent. He looked 
like an African-American man when he came to play in the United States, but he spoke Spanish. And so um, I, I always tell everyone, um, you, know, you know, mainstream representations uh, for the vast majority of, of those re- representations in this country have portrayed Latinos as the mestizo, uh, uh, in other words, brown-skinned, dark-haired, uh, often um, smallish people that, that, that are portrayed as bandits or they're portrayed as cartel members in, in, um, story, in visual storytelling. And we don't often see the, 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 the vast array of um, expressions of um, ancestry that we often find in our reality, in our lived experience uh, in Latinx culture. Frederick Caldama, uh, anything you want to say on that? And then, then maybe moving this forward, um, it, it, the two of you give the example of yourselves in this discussion, right? And how, how the two of you are perceived. Yeah, no, that's great, Tom. Thanks um, for bringing that up. Um, yeah, let me just add a couple of things. One is that as Chris so, you know, carefully and smartly just talked about, one of the side effects that we don't really kind of, we're not maybe always aware of is that when someone, I don't know, let's take Cameron Diaz, is, uh, and speculating, I don't know her, but let's say she um, is, you know, someone says, you don't look Latina. And we hear this kind of thing all the time. And it's usually, I'll be honest, it's usually folks outside of our communities because our communities know that, you know, anything can kind of come out in the wash. Um, and we can be lighter, darker. We can look Afro-Latino. we all in the same family. But the point is that those become microaggressions. They are microaggressions because that person in that phrase, in that moment is telling you, as a light-skinned Latino, Latina, how you should be identifying. And that is nobody's right except your own. To self-identify is your own right. But you see, it becomes a kind of microaggression. And worse, it becomes a way, a tool to divide community. Well, you're blanquito, huerito, you're not, you don't look Latino or whatever, starts to infiltrate our communities. Not because it's, in fact, a lived reality, it's because the microaggressions become so omnipresent. So, yeah, I think what Chris was talking about, so important to kind of naturalize in a very positive, progressive way, the very, the great diversity that we are within our communities. And I'm not just talking about light-skinned Latinos like myself, uh, but also Afro-Latinos that are in our families and our communities, and to embrace uh, the, the great phenotypic, the great linguistic differences at the same time that we acknowledge our common ground. So on that note, yeah, so Chris, Christopher and I, you know, we talk about this in the book. Christopher is, you know, he's probably twice my size, um, He's like super athlete. I'm like, you know, kind of skinny dude, uh, huero, huerito, kind of light-skinned, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and yet, you know, here we are. We have never once, we have never once together from the very minute that we came to, to become friends, 
questioned our Latinidad, our Latinoness in one another. It just is. And I think that's what we are kind of really pushing at that, in that statement in the book, that we come in all sorts of different shapes and sizes, phenotypic variations, uh, sort of some of us are monolingual Spanish, some of us are bilingual, some of us are monolingual English. It does not take away from our Latinoness. Um, you, uh, important statement in the book, um, from early in the book, uh, the two of you say representation, talking about representation in media, right? Representation is a crucial aspect of any kind of marginalized uh, community. I'll start with Frederick Aldama on this one. Uh, why? Why is this crucial? Well, representation, so re- representation matters because representation is everywhere. It's the social mirror that reflects back what is kind of the normative or what we should desire and aspire to be. And when that representation, when it comes to Latinos, is a fairly conventionally and traditionally lazy, sloppy, and even racist representation as a result, then what the social mirror is mirroring back to us and our communities, to our children, to our families, to our demographic at large is that we don't belong. So we wake up in the morning and we, we, are, we know we, you know we belong in this country. We belong here. We were born here. We're now generations here. Some of us were here even before anybody else, and then the border crossed us. And yet everything in TV, media, in advertising is telling us, that we don't belong because of the way we speak or the way we, um, our cultural traditions are in our lives or our, our hair type, our nose shape, etc. All of these things become markers of not belonging, and that's why it matters. And it matters also when you have a big platform, as someone does right now, and says that we are the ones, we're the bad hombres, we're the ones crossing the border. We're the ones taping up women's mouths and smuggling them into the country, et cetera. And we're the ones that are allowing for prayer rugs along the border, so we need a wall. And then you find out that that person has been watching a movie called Sicario 2, where all of those things happen literally exactly in the way that I just described. And yet that is not mentioned. It takes an investigative reporter to figure out that one has led to the other, and yet it has caused a lot of grief and strife and conflict and even trauma within Latino communities as a result. Christopher Gonzalez, this question of representation, why is it uh, crucial for any marginalized community? Well, you know, the first thing that I'll say, in in addition to everything that Frederick just wonderfully laid out, is that um, it is not simply a, a numbers game. It is not simply... Uh, you know, representation in terms of sheer numbers. Well, we have more, say, Latino characters or uh, black characters or Asian characters in a particular uh, film or television show um, because we can still have just a perpetuation of stereotypes, having more bad examples uh, of or limited, um, uninteresting characterizations of Latinx peoples in film and television isn't helpful. So I always say, you know, it's, it's not that representation matters as a numbers game. It's that quality representation 
is what matters. So that is to say we have or should aspire to, if we're watching a film and we see, say, uh, a, a Latinx man who is a cartel member, uh, why can't we also see uh, the president of the United States as portrayed by a Latinx man in the same film, right? That is a, is a vast departure from what we typically uh, would see in a film. It's very easy. It's, it, it is part of a tradition of lazy storytelling. When you need a ready-made bad guy, look for someone who has dark skin. That is, that is, that is the history of, of, of Hollywood. That is the history of the television industry. If you need a ready-made bad guy, like, like Frederick was saying, that kind of rhetoric then you know, trickles up and is taken up by people in power. And so then it becomes this self-perpetuating cycle. So the cycle has to be broken, and, and the way to do that is to actively, uh, not passively, because it won't happen on its own. Um, power concedes nothing without a challenge. So there has to be active um, uh, efforts to create interventions in storytelling where we have a diverse uh, a representation of peoples like we see, as Frederick said, mirrored in our society. It's so important because, and I'm speaking here from, from Utah, as you are, Tom, and we know that, you know, the state of Utah has historically been a white majority state uh, since its, um, uh, you know, statehood and even just before it became a state. And it has taken a long time within, you know, my lifetime going from a point of a handful of Latinx people uh, in this part of the state of Utah uh, to now where we are, where, you know, depending on where you are in the state, you're at 10 to 12 percent uh, being Latinos. Um, but that's still not a lot. And if, if people who are not Latino only receive their information of Latino culture by what they uh, take in through mass media, through film, through television – then that becomes part of the knowledge of that particular group of people. And then politi uh, political folks, politicians, governors, uh, senators, uh, presidents can then, they actually can use that uh, to their advantage to leverage uh, divisiveness uh, amongst political groups and identity groups in the country. Let's uh, take a break. We'll come back uh, more. We have uh, with us for the hour, uh, Frederick Luis Aldama and uh, Christopher Gonzalez. They are authors of the new book, Real Latinxes, talking about uh, representation on uh, in, in film and television. And we'll have much more following this. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Salt Lake City Weekly, a Utah news source since 1984, covering music, dining, nightlife, and more in Salt Lake City and beyond. Available weekly at 1,800 locations across the Wasatch Front or online at cityweekly.net. During the pandemic, more Americans with drug addiction are turning up at hospital emergency rooms desperate for help. The overdose patients that come into an emergency room, they're at their most vulnerable. You know, they've been dead or near dead and brought back to life. But many hospitals are not prepared. That story, Monday afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. This afternoon from 3 to 6.30 on Utah Public Radio. The U.S. plans to protect 30% of land and water by 2030. 
a necessary step to avoid mass extinctions. The extinction crisis is certainly happening right now. Species are going extinct at a much faster rate than normal. Scientists estimate it's about a thousand times the natural background rate. I'm Bobby Bascom, protecting habitat and biodiversity, next time on Living on Earth from PRX. Wednesday mornings at 10 o'clock here on Utah Public Radio. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast last October. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, uh, and our guests are Christopher Gonzalez and Frederick Luis Aldama. Uh, Christopher Gonzalez from Utah State University, Frederick Aldama from The Ohio State University, and they are co-authors of Real Latinxes, um, looking at uh, representations in uh, in film and television. And so, uh, R-E-E-L, the title of the book, but we're talking about R-E-A-L, right, as well. Um, so, uh, j- just a statistic, this is pretty stark uh, from the book, before we uh, jump back into this conversation. The authors say that in the United States, 18% of the population is Latinx, but 2% of a mainstream cultural phenomena, or Latinx, and that 2% is often uh, denigrative, they say. So that's what we're talking about on the, on the program today. Um, I want to, you, you mentioned, uh, each of you, that uh, kind of what got you into to this, uh, you know, studying um, this topic, and especially representation, is uh, your, your lived experiences, right? Not seeing real Latinxes on TV and film, as kids, so beginning with Christopher Gonzalez, what what did you see uh, growing up that, that that struck you? Yeah, um, well, for, you know, first of all, I was uh, I was I was born in Lubbock, Texas, uh, so I'm I'm from West Texas, you know, which is uh, kind of like the edge of the Southwest, uh, the eastern edge of the Southwest. It, it's an interesting mix of the Great Plains and the Southwest, um, and you know, have have a there, there's a significant number of Latinos and Latinxes there. Um, so I saw my culture reflected in the real world. When, when we went to the grocery store, when we went out um, to grab something to eat, or I went to school, I saw Latinxes everywhere. And yet, um, I, I'm of the age uh, that, that I, I'm of the generation that was highly influenced by um, Star Wars. And so as a kid, I was... Um, like like millions of kids, probably, uh, I was just fascinated with uh, the Star Wars films, and yet, um, you know, I I I I I never saw anyone in those uh, three original films that looked like me that that um, seemed to kind of reflect my own um, kind of experience. Even though I, you know, it's easy to connect to something like. You know, uh, kind of the hero's journey. That's that's why it's so popular. Um, you know, the kind of the kid who grows up in you know the middle of nowhere is like the savior of the universe. Um, so that that's, that was an, uh, it was very appealing to me. But I was keenly aware that it was almost like the film was not really for me. I, I was a kind of interloper. I could kind of enjoy it, but I could never enjoy it fully because. I I never felt I had permission to claim it because there was never anything that reflected my own culture and my own uh, kind of sense of self and you know that's just one example you know we could we could go on and on uh, in those formative uh, moments of um, 
my experiences with television and film, just not really seeing, uh, you know, very interesting and uh, in many ways unexpected representation of Latinxes. Often, if I would see someone who is Latino uh, on, you know, in television or in film, they were they were often relegated to, you know, characters who didn't have a name. They were they were they were just kind of like there for a function in the storytelling. Um, or maybe it was something, someone like Eric Estrada in, in the show Chips, right? Which, you know, he actually, and I know this now, but I didn't know it at the time, he's really filling that, that Latin lover stereotype that was propagated in, in uh, Hollywood. Uh, and then, of course, um, you know, Speedy Gonzalez is the Warner Brothers character that is, is you know, my, my He's almost like an antagonist for me in my life because because I share his last name. We're both Gonzalez's. When I was growing up, I was always called Speedy, and I was called Speedy because that that was probably the only Gonzalez that that was kind of famous at the at the time that people knew. And you know, Speedy Gonzalez is a gross exaggeration of Mexican culture. And you know, for for me, that character is very hard to see with the. Uh, uh, with the voice characterizations of Mel Blanc, who is not Latino, it kind of like, um, you know, pretending to kind of put on this uh, Hispanic accent is very uh, denigrating to me. So, um, you know, that was my early experiences with it. And, and, and as I got older, I thought, well, how can I speak back to this? How can I now critique something that, that I really felt keenly as a kid, but I didn't know why I felt it? Uh, Frederick Aldama, what what about you growing up? What uh, what had an impact on you from media? Yeah, that's a great question, Tom. And you know, I love Chris. Uh, sort of, you know, just you know, laying it all down here, laying it bare for us. You know, I I had a slightly different experience in that we moved when I was around five years old from Mexico. My mom is Guatemalan Irish American from from L.A. from East L.A. Um, and um, my Papa is from Mexico City, and uh, we moved back to California when I was five. Um, I was born in Mexico City. But, yeah, so for me, just to kind of complicate it a little bit as well, um, yeah, I remember, of course, Chips and um, Eric Estrada, and I remember also Adam's family. I thought, in fact, I, to me, they were like the Latinx family um, on TV, the Adams family. They were like super different and they had dark hair and they were, you know, kind of, you know, alienated or estranged in the neighborhood, et cetera. So for me, it was, it was kind of Adam's family. Um, there was others, you know, like Welcome Back Cotter and um, other shows where we had Latinxes. But I think, you know, one of the things to take from this is that, um, and an early experience of mine was, we would go to the pulga, the flea market all the time, and we, um, the kind of lucha libre culture, the, the Mexican wrestling culture was very much a part of my childhood. And I remember dressing up as a kind of hybrid version of Superman and a lucha libre slash Batman uh, with my mask and kind of imagining myself as a superhero lucha libre that was a combo, a hybrid of all of the above. And I mention that because one of the really important um, arguments in our book that Chris and I make is that, yes, representation matters, and forever it has been lazy and stereotypical and even denigrative. But 
we are passive absorptive sponges. And that's why I wanted to share that example. As a kid, yeah, you know, there wasn't, I didn't see any Latinx, Latino superheroes, but I made my own. Like Batman was Latino because I imagined myself as Batman, luchador, right? Hybrid. I, as human beings, we are not passive absorbed. We are active transformers and co-creators. So we'll take something like Adam's family and we're going to transform it into a Latinx family, right? Now, this doesn't let mainstream representation off the hook and the Hollywood producers who are so scared to put in a brown person, a Zoe Saldana, as maybe Captain Marvel or Black Widow, right? Casting, you know, us in spaces where we don't see ourselves. No, they are on the hook for sure. But what I want to mention here is that in the end, we're not just simply sitting around whining about this. We're actually actively transforming. And many of us are actively transforming in ways that we put out comic books. We put out movies. We're showrunners now, a lot of us. Writers, we're writing, um, we're writing the narratives behind TV shows today. Hintified, um, On My Block, all of these, you know, really great shows, um, uh, Pose, you know, that have been kind of recognized in the media. You know, we have people now, Coco is a good one we talk about, right, where they brought in consultants like Lalo Alcaraz to make sure to get things right. And guess what? They got it right, and our families went, and then our families went again, and our bigger families and our extended families, we all went and saw Coco, and our families in Mexico, and our families everywhere went and saw, because finally, they didn't just go for the careless, stereotypical stuff. They actually went out and said, hey, did we get this right? Um, I want to uh, get into maybe some of the reasons why you, you talked about laziness or maybe it's willful misrepresentation or it could be racism or just being out of step or maybe all of the above. I'll start with Frederick Aldama um, on this one. And, and you uh, quote a couple of times in the book uh, something I think Chris Rock said, which in, in L.A. where, you know, Hollywood is. So, <laughs> um all you have to do is, is you know, uh, go out the door and you can find uh, somebody from the Latinx community to consult with you on on good representations, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you have to go out of your way not to represent Latinxes when they are, we are such a uh, formidable part of the building blocks of our reality. And, Tom, let's remember that narratives narrative storytelling, uh, TV, film, comic books, wherever we find our stories, are, after all, a distillation, a kind of stripping down and paraphrasing of our building blocks of reality, and then reconstructing them, reconstituting them in giving them shape, whether it's cinema or TV, serial form, etc. Now, if, you, if we aren't in those narrative spaces, especially today. In fact, our numbers, since we wrote that book, the numbers are now up uh, around 19% plus, and yet we're still way below the, that percentage in representation. You, you know, you are right, Tom, to say it is a willful erasure. It is a willful erasure because even in places like the Midwest and the South, we are seeing the fastest growing demographic 
as Latinxes. So you, it's not even L.A. So you have to go out of your way not to have us represented, and you have to go out of your way to not have us represented in ways that, well, represent the complexity of who we are. Um, Chris Gonzalez, uh, anything else you'd like to say uh, on that? But then continue, you know, similar vein, uh, uh, this struck me from the book. Uh, you say capitalism works first to heterogenize and then to homogenize the, the, the money forces. That's interesting. Uh, what do you mean by that? Yeah, so so I can just go back just briefly, um, but but it's also tied to this idea of capitalism. So, um, you know, Hollywood, the you know kind of television industry, um, they they are money making enterprises. That that's that that is that is their bottom line. They are trying to profit, right? And so, what these industries have historically done is that they continue. To pursue where they have found success in the past. So, if they, um, you know, if if the hero is a white Anglo man, um, then why would we change that? If that's what everyone's going to see, uh, the problem is when society itself, that mirrored reality that that Frederick talked about earlier, when that becomes more and more diverse, and yet as an industry you are you are still t- tethered. Uh, um, you know, willfully tethered to um, paradigms that no longer fit your current moment, um, then you seem out of touch. Then you seem out of step. Um, And so even though it was, you know, even the earliest inception of the Hollywood industry, you know, excluded. It was very exclusive, and I don't mean that in a positive way. So it excluded. Um, and but if if that industry continues to do that while the country becomes more and more diverse, um, then then there's going to be a kind of cognitive dissonance that happens. And so these um, these movie studios, these television studios, um, they don't want to take a chance on something that has no prior precedent. So if you have never had a film that was directed by a black man that features a majority of characters who have African descent, um, that sounds scary to Hollywood studios. But yet we have that example of Black Panther uh, as, uh, you know, one of the, you know, top 10 grossing films of all time. Um, And not only did it make a lot of money, it was critically lauded. So, you know, you have to have these kind of singular breakthroughs uh, in order to kind of start to see some change in the decision makers in Hollywood and in the television industry. Um, and it takes someone to kind of, you know, take a chance, even though, you know, you know, scholars like Frederick and I know that these things will work. Um, you know, it, it is because it is a, a capitalistic enterprise, they want return on investment, and they base that on what has come before. So if you have a historically white, exclusive industry, uh, it 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 will it will turn like the Titanic. It's going to take a long time, and we hope that it has enough time to turn. And that's the situation that we find ourselves in. And incidentally, you know, Black Panther was was such a success, and thank goodness it was. Had it had it failed, um, it could have been the last time we saw such a film in you know greenlighted in Hollywood, because then they would have used that as a precedent to say, see. 
Nobody's going to see a film directed by a black man about black characters, uh, so let us never do it again. In fact, you... Uh, yeah, Tom, yes, go ahead. Tom, can I just jump in here really quick? Yes. Oh, sorry. Yeah, so just to... Okay, this... You know, the more money involved in the narrative making, the less so-called risk, the more fear, and therefore the more paralysis and the less innovation. Now, that said... Of course, it bottom line is, in the way that our socioeconomic system works, money is king. So you see, when you start to go into other spaces, like let's look at D.C., for instance, comics, you start seeing like, oh, my goodness, there are Latinxes out there who like will spend money on these comic books. Let's start throwing out in the reboots um, the new 52s. Let's, like, recreate all these characters as Latinx. And Chris and I are like, wow, we love it. But the second that they find one that sells and that the others don't quite sell as well, then the others disappear. So we go from multiplicity, um, but it's a multiplicity and a kind of spectrum in the interest, finally, of finding that one that makes the money, finding the one Wakanda that will make the money, and therefore, like pushing all the others under the carpet. Do you do you think there will be a Latinx Wakanda coming down the the, <laughs> the Chris road? And I, we we talk about this all the time. We want our our Wakanda, right, Chris? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we haven't got it. Yeah, yet, certainly. We want it? Um, yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, let's take a break. When we come back, um, I want to get into maybe some examples, good and bad. Uh, so, you know, you've you've been throwing out some examples. Appreciate that. Uh, we'll get into uh, some more uh, and continue this discussion. The book is Real Latinxes. We're talking about representation of Latinx community on uh, in film and television. And uh, the authors, Christopher Gonzalez from uh, USU and uh, Frederick Luis Aldama from Ohio State University, are on with us. Uh, more following this break. Support for Utah Public Radio programming comes from our members and USU's College of Agriculture and Applied Sciences, congratulating students and its class of 2020 with more than 800 certificates, associates, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees at USU campuses statewide and online. Information at caas.usu.edu. Over and over throughout this last year, we've heard from UPR listeners all across the state commenting on how Utah Public Radio has helped them feel more connected during moments of increased isolation, loneliness, and physical distance. That is the power of radio, to connect and to create community even when we're physically far apart. If you have felt more connected to the world around you because of UPR, then help support that service today with an early gift at upr.org so we can start our spring member drive strong and ahead of schedule. Hi, I'm Natalie Gochner. I represent the Political Center. Join us for Both Sides of the Aisle from KCPW, a weekly debate over politics, policy, and current issues facing the state of Utah, featuring voices representing the right, the center, and the left. Both Sides of the Aisle attempts to help you understand the important questions facing residents of this state while proving that Republicans and Democrats can sit in a small room and have a meaningful conversation. Tune in Thursday mornings at 10 here on Utah Public Radio. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast last October. 
You're listening to Axis U Time. Tom Williams. Uh, the book is Real Latin Axis. The authors Frederick Aldama and uh, Christopher Gonzalez are with us uh, for another 15 minutes. Uh, so, gentlemen, um, let me start with uh, Frederick Aldama with this one. Uh, so, first question will be uh, one or two, uh, especially bad examples of uh, <laughs> laziness in Hollywood or, or misrepresentation, especially egregious. And then I'll ask you for maybe some good examples. So, Frederick uh, Aldama, a couple of especially egregious examples. Uh, yeah, so that's like, you know, putting the bucket into a stream of, you know, like a, a little pond uh, with a bunch of goldfish and like saying you went like and tried hard to uh, catch a fish. Um you know, it's it's kind of the air we breathe. But let me give you a, a recent example. Um, I was, and and then I'm going to contrast that example. But I was uh, watching the season ten of Shameless, the TV show, and I was like pleasantly surprised because the you know well first of all it's a show that kind of pokes fun at class issues of class but it also gives voice to those who have not been kind of in the protagonist seat in terms of working class even urban uh kind of uh, poor class uh white folks there's a moment in the season when the dad um he and his buddy Luis Guzman played by Luis Guzman Mikey um, have this really intimate moment, and it was a really kind of tender, great moment um, where you start, you saw like class um, actually kind of working, two working class, um, underclass characters really showing empathy and tenderness for one another, and kind of really understanding how actually class, the class system itself, ends up dividing us. But then on the other side, and the thing that kind of took away my pleasure and my sort of delight in this season 10 was the way ICE and um, immigration entered in as a subtext to especially the middle part of season 10. And it was a narrative that felt like it was forced into the space. It didn't feel organic like the relationship between this sort of down-and-out father and this Luis Guzman uh, played character, Mikey. It felt really forced. You saw, you know, suddenly the Gallagher family brought in these Latinxes that were being um, hunted by ICE. They're in their house, and the first thing you see them do is set up shop to make a bunch of tamales, and that's all you ever see them do, is making tamales and watching telenovelas. Um, you know, that's what I'm talking about. So, yeah, there's this moment we get a glimmer and people like me and Chris and others are like, wow, this is actually like someone here who's like sensitive to the reality that we live in and it's reconstructing in really interesting ways. And then suddenly you get this really like stereotypical insertion in a really non-organic way that actually ruins the entire show, the entire season, the whole narrative itself. On the flip side, you have, in, in places like Netflix, you have great writing because of things like Gentified, and you have that because you have writers like Linda Yvette Chavez and others who are from the community now 
in the writing studio spaces with the writing team, guiding the writers. She grew up in Boyle Heights, and you have this incredibly organic, natural, and yet entertaining and insightful, um, complex story about a family living in Boyle Heights. So these are two kind of contrasts that I'm seeing right now happening. And, of course, Hentify got canceled, even though we had a great turnout. We had tons of viewer viewership, uh, just the same way that One Day at a Time got canceled, huge viewership. And it took us in the community and kind of activist uh, watchdogs like Nalip and others to come in and say what's going on to get One Day at a Time kind of reinstituted. But, you know, that's that's those are my examples. Uh, so Christopher Gonzalez, same thing, uh, maybe a, an example of misrepresentation uh, that you find especially egregious, and then maybe a good example. Yeah, so um, this is probably the most recent example of, an, of kind of a terrible um, um, instance is a film called The Tax Collector that um, was released uh, in August of this year during the pandemic. Uh, and uh, Shia LaBeouf is, is the protagonist. And it's set uh, in Los Angeles, and it takes um, just the the like the worst stereotypes that you might imagine about drugs, about uh, Chicano culture, about Los Angeles, um, and it kind of mashes it into a really execrable uh, film that is that is not worth. Um, even on the, just the level of storytelling, it's not a good story, but it's it's exacerbated because it is uh, just kind of like it revels in this kind of um, far right, alt right uh, uh, conceptions of uh, um, Latinx male uh, or masculinity uh, uh, in its in its cultural representation. That's that's just from a few months ago. Uh, and one that's not too um, too far in, in our in our past is from 2018. It's a film called El Chicano, which was billed as um, a superhero film, and many uh, media outlets uh, um, incorrectly labeled it as the first um, uh, you know Latinx uh, superhero. Um, it's really interesting that that happens a lot. <laughs> there's always a first when there's a, as Frederick has written about. I mean, Frederick has, you know, you know, written about the, you know, kind of the history of Latinx superheroes, uh, especially in comics. And again, that's a film that seems to just be, um, kind of serving this up to alt-right, uh, you know, fever dreams, right? And just like, oh, this is, this is how dangerous the uh latinx man is in our nation and uh it was and and it too was was critically panned um uh, thankfully uh th those those are probably two of the worst examples of what we're talking about and both of those were released basically after frederick and i had written the book otherwise that it probably would have deserved another section in the book just so we would um vivisect these two films now, in terms of uh, good representation, you know, I always, and, you know, Frederick and I write about this in the book, I always go back to Coco uh, because it's really a model for listening to the community, listening to people whose knowledge of the culture is deep, 
um, you know, where a lot of these films and shows go wrong is that they just simply haven't done their due diligence. They haven't brought in as consultants or as writers people who understand the culture from an intimate, personally lived way, and instead they're bringing people who are doing Google searches on Latinx culture. And so that's why we get this surface-level, flimsy, house-of-cards-type uh, narrative structure for some of these films, but Coco shows um, how to do it correctly. And, you know, uh, Disney Pixar had to swallow their pride. Uh, they made several missteps, and they actually, you know, Frederick had mentioned Lalo Alcaraz earlier, who has really made his name as a political cartoonist, uh, and he criticized uh, very publicly uh, Disney for its attempts to, for example, trademark the, the, the actual name Dia de los Muertos, uh, which is a which is a Mexican holiday, and and they tried to trademark that, and so uh, he and a few other um, um, Latinx critics really hammered them, and instead of doubling down, uh, Disney Pixar brought them in and listened to them, and 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 brought them on to um, kind of cor- you know correct their missteps, and the film was made better for that. Uh, and just the last example I have is from television. Um, if you probably didn't know earlier, you know, I'm a huge science fiction, fantasy, speculative, you know, person, and I really like these narratives, and I'm a big Star Trek fan. Uh, the most recent uh, show in the Star Trek universe is called Picard, and, and, it, and it brings Jean-Luc Picard back, and there's a character um, that is uh, played by... Santiago Cabrera, who is Chilean, but he lived in the UK. He has he's kind of a world traveler, and he plays a captain, and he and he has a very complicated, robust characterization. I loved that. I would have loved to have seen that as a kid. That is what I was talking about earlier when I said when I saw Luke Skywalker, I did not see myself. I saw myself at it, you know, like always being unable to completely own uh, that that particular character. You know, a character um, like this, you know, Captain Rios, would have really appealed to me because he he looked like someone who could have been my deal. We just have about uh, a minute left. We'll give uh, the last word to uh, Frederick Aldama. Um, and what you talk about, uh, you know, pressure, you know, hashtags, Oscars so white, uh, real so white, that kind of thing, economic pressures. So just only a minute with this. What um, what do you think will have the, the biggest effect in, in helping to change things? Yeah, so the Oscars now have, um, by 2024, I believe they will have implemented a, a pretty strong kind of series of um, check boxes where they're trying to reset and reboot and get the balance right in terms of diversity. So we'll see in the next couple of years, um, you know, how this might push people out of their comfort zones to actually step outside their door instead of getting in their car and driving from their garage to their Hollywood studio and accepting coffee from the brown and black folk in their lives but never actually stopping to talk to them. Maybe this will actually get them to start thinking about the, the world that they exist within and get them to think about, um, you know, to step outside of acting from fear and to step inside the place of re- real creativity. 
Well, at the end of our time, uh, appreciate the, the conversation. Very interesting. The book is Real Latinxes, and uh, the authors have, uh, have joined us. Uh, Frederick Luis Aldama is uh, with The Ohio State University, and uh, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Tom. And Christopher Gonzalez is with Utah State University. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tom. I just want to mention again here at the end, uh, the 2020 International Latino Book Awards has announced that the the authors we've just talked to have won first place uh, uh, in those awards for best nonfiction uh, multi-author section for Real Latinxes. The book is out and available, and uh, we thank uh, the authors for the conversation. Thank you for listening today to Access Utah. On the next Putumayo World Music Hour, we bring you funky techno and tribal beats, cool combinations of electronic effects with traditional melodies heard in the clubs and lounges of Europe, Africa, Asia, and Australia. I'm Rosalie Howarth. Join me for Global Groove, the next Putumayo World Music Hour. Join us Thursday night at 10 on Utah Public Radio. For the past two years here on Utah Public Radio, we've been bringing you a weekly dose of research and exploration. We call it undisciplined because we work really hard to take scientific studies, which are usually written in journals intended for people who share a background in a subject matter, and make them accessible for just about everyone. There are more than 100 episodes available wherever you get your podcasts, or you can catch us every Thursday morning at 1030 here on UPR. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan, and also heard at upr.org.